0: Welcome to this session aptly named interrogating the evidence Um, so we're really keen that this session is going to be practical it's going to try and answer some of the kind of how do we do this stuff in reality questions that I'm sure are going on in your brains Uh, so my name is Sam Dixon I I lead digital strategy and design at Public Health England Uh, and we're going to split this into two sections Um, so myself and Neelam are going to be chairing uh, Neilan is the chief operating officer at MedCity. So I'm going to hand over to the panelists. So each panelist, in turn, is going to get three minutes, and they're going to be a bit pedantic about the three minutes um, to talk about themselves, their product, and give one of the one of the challenges and some key learnings from from their experience. Uh, and then after that, we're going to open up to the floor. So Neilam and I will ask a couple of obviously scripted and hopefully quite harsh questions to get us going. Uh, and then open out to the floor to, uh, to, get, to allow you all to ask questions, and get some really kind of deep insights. So uh, with that in mind, I'm going to hand over to our, to our first, uh, first panelist.
1: I'm Pierre Laurent. I'm the founder and CEO of Voluntis. Uh, we're a digital therapeutics company with activities currently in diabetes and oncology. So as you know, there are two categories of digital therapeutics, some that are positioned as substitute to drug therapies, some that are more complementing drug therapies. So we are in the second category. So our goal at Voluntis is to help improve the real-world outcomes of medication therapies. So in the case of diabetes, uh, we have a product called Insulia. It's targeted at patients treated on insulin. uh, Insulin, as you know, is very effective as a product. However, it's uh, largely misused in the real world, uh, so what Insolia does is we have a way for patients to uh, guide them throughout their treatment, to provide them with instant treatment recommendations, such as insulin dose adjustments every day to help them get the most out of their treatment. We also enable remote patient monitoring uh, by the healthcare team so that they could intervene in between face-to-face visits to provide the right care management support to patients. So it's uh, regulated as a medical device. Uh, It's a class 2B device in Europe. Uh, It's a class 2 device in uh, in the US. We did uh, large-scale randomized control trials uh, in uh, type 2 diabetes to assess the efficacy of this product. So thank you for highlighting these results uh, earlier. Uh, We have developed partnerships uh, with uh, leading life science companies to help bring this product to scale. So uh, in Europe and uh, North America, we are currently rolling out uh, this technology with companies like Sanofi, uh, the joint venture between Sanofi and Google called OnDuo, uh, WellDoc is a partner of ours, we uh, live as well. And we are now getting to the point of expanding uh, the, the reimbursement uh, for these kind of technologies. Uh, we got a nationwide reimbursement in France uh, for this device, and now we're working hard to also get some more reimbursement in other countries. Very happy to be with you today.
2: Yeah, hi, I'm Simon Bourne, I'm a, well, I was a respiratory consultant until nine months ago, um, so in 2011 I set up MyM Health, um, in 2007 I was a CBD consultant in the community and realised a huge problem we had in managing large populations, making sure people had access to pulmonary rehabilitation, making sure people were taking their inhaler devices correctly. So this is not rocket science, but it's done really badly on a face-to-face basis. When we did a clinical study in our patient population, we videoed their inhaler technique. 90% of our patients couldn't take their inhaled medication correctly. 90%, that's a huge volume, huge waste, hundreds of millions of pounds worth of um, inhaled medication we're wasting, and we're not realizing the outcomes that those inhaled devices can achieve, which is a 25% reduction in positive admissions, 25% reduction in exacerbation frequency. And then we went for the next level. So most of my patients didn't have access to pulmonary rehab. As you know, access to pulmonary rehab is pretty sketchy around the country. We only rehab between 10 and 15,000 COPD patients every year. We have 1.2 million COPD patients in the UK. So how do we go out there and deliver this at significant scale? We were very lucky. So we won one of the small research business innovation grants um, from Innovate UK. And we ran a formal RCT but these things aren't cheap. It costs 900,000 pounds to run an RCT and develop a world-leading COPD product. But we got the evidence, we did a non-inferiority study against face-to-face pulmonary rehab programs and showed that they were non-inferior. And you may think, well, I'm gonna give someone with COPD a a really nice app at home. It gets them really engaged in pulmonary rehab and they're not gonna use it. Well, they really do. And just, uh, we had a patient the other day because we put a new button on our app which allowed you to reset your pulmonary rehab programme. So you go through one to six weeks, and the reset programme then steps you back to week one. When well, I had a patient ring me up saying, I've got a real problem here. I've gone through my six weeks of pulmonary rehab, and I've been working on the week six programme for the last 10 weeks, and I saw this button appear, which said, reset pulmonary rehab programme. He thought, well, I was quite inquisitive. I'll press that button. So he pressed the button, pushed him right back to week one. He was distraught, because he couldn't get back to week six, six again. So, if we think our patients aren't going to use things that enable them to manage their healthcare significantly, then we're wrong. Patients are desperate for the information, evidence based information, that allows them to manage their conditions effectively. And we now have four apps across all long term conditions. We're across 55 CCGs in the UK. It's being used out now in 100,000 patients, and we're starting to internationalise from this year.
3: Um, I'm Sophie. I'm a UK innovation lead for Big Health. We call ourselves a digital medicine company um, and our ambition is to help millions back to good mental health. How are we going to do that? Using technology to deliver evidence-based psychological therapies in a fully automated but personalised way. Uh, And as Nelia illustrated earlier, our first product is called Sleepio. It's a digital sleep improvement programme based on CBT. You can access it anywhere online using a computer or iPhone. Uh, And basically you you log log in each week and you meet your animated sleep expert, the prof, uh, and his narcoleptic dog Pavlov. And they take you through some tools and techniques to address your racing mind and uh, get you off to sleep naturally. Uh, And for those of you who are kind of nodding off a little bit in this warm room in the early afternoon, um, we, thanks to the NHS in London, are now freely available to all Londoners. So if you would like to try it out for yourselves, uh, you can come and find my colleagues at the back of the room um, under the Big Health banner. Um, So since we launched in 2012, uh, the company has published 30 peer-reviewed papers, six randomized control trials, and we have a steady uh, flow of evidence, including recently uh, a NICE health application briefing, one of the first health apps uh, to have a NICE hab, uh, which is very nice of them. I think in terms of challenges to evidence, I think it was all on that slide, actually. Most of us are struggling in terms of the cost-effectiveness case, um, and that's not because we're not saving money it's because it's really hard to demonstrate particularly in the nhs where data is not incredibly well joined up across primary and secondary care and permission to link individual user data with that data so these are all things that we're navigating um i would say in terms of learning uh one of our company values is the tenacity to move mountains and it is a case sometimes of just sticking at it um and we were very grateful to be awarded um innovate uk funding uh this year to implement a large um, implementation across the Thames Valley region which will include that cost-effectiveness evaluation.
4: Hi, good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, Kelly is actually a five-year-old company uh, created out of UCSF. Uh, We actually developed medical device digital therapeutics to treat cognition across multiple therapeutic areas. We started with behavioral disorders uh, as the example that was presented today, the treatment of ADHD, which is a very specific indication within behavioral. We picked it four years ago at the time of studying uh, the first clinical program because of the coherence of the cognitive domain that are impacted in what we're doing at the time. But today we have activities in uh, CNS more broadly, not only behavioral, uh, immune disorders, immune oncology, and uh, we'll announce new therapeutic area in the future. So, the kind of products we develop actually, uh, and unlike the other companies here, we're not yet commercial. Uh, we should file for uh, 510K de novo uh, in FDA within coming weeks, maybe May, maybe June, uh, and then we'll file for EMA approval next year. Um, so, we file as medical device under CDRH management as, um, as digital therapeutics, and the language we already discussed a little bit with the agency in the US, is for the treatment of cognition in ADHD as a monotherapy, or in association with other treatments. And so what we do is we design our clinical trials, we pick the endpoints, and if it were prescribed as monotherapies, and then we actually do supplemental clinical developments to show that the use of those technology in association, adjunct, concomitant with drugs, or other therapies makes sense. Uh, and it makes sense not only at the clinical level, but also makes sense at the pharmacoeconomical level when there is a drug involved. So uh, so all of our products are developed along the same lines. We try to get approval as a monotherapy the first, and then we combine them in the future. So right now, we have actually indications for the treatment of cognitions. We have actually also done some programs in uh, detecting early onset of Alzheimer's. Um, and so by actually developing a clinical score uh, for actually detecting the, the risk of having plaques in the brain. So we're not a diagnostic company. Uh, we're actually looking at it as a clinical assessment tool where physicians could say, like you do the cholesterol, cholesterol tests on an annual basis, you could do this five minutes evaluation uh, using our platforms and say, the risk of having plaques in your brain is this amount, and I should decide as your physician whether or not you should go to scan. Because if we want to tackle with the asymptomatic population with Alzheimer, everybody in the room knows that it's not possible to send everyone to scan. So we're developing those kind of digital therapeutic tools as well to really find the right people in the in the general population. And just to finish on that, it happens that our video, uh, actually our, our products look like video game. Uh, and it's not because actually we just are video gamers at Achilles, it's because from the get-go, at the inception of the company, we used them as a way to deliver the treatments and maximize endurance and compliance. So, all of our patients are actually experiencing treatments through 30 minutes a day, five days a week, 28 days in a row of video gaming. And they actually develop exactly the same line, uh, along the same line of drugs. And we actually develop and we have internalized our video game studio, and they work under CFR and QSR compliance. And so we get audited by agencies in the u.s and, and that's what we do thank you
5: well good afternoon everybody on chief strategy officer one of the co-founders of weldoc um, by way of background i'm actually a wireless guy uh, and i also have type 2 diabetes myself and i'm a consumer of our product i affectionately joke that the two things define me one is good which is wireless in my blood one is not so good which is too much sugar in my blood somehow WellDoc has managed to fuse the two and take advantage of that i think Building off of what everybody said in the panel, um, as a patient myself, I'll personalize it. I have to measure my glucose, I have to measure what I eat, I have to measure how many steps I take, or my exercise, my sleep, all the 360 of my diabetes. And there's this wee little thing called life that gets in the way every now and then. So I may not be able to do the things I wanna do. At the same time, I'm a little bit of a data nerd, so I graph everything and take it into my doctor. And what's my doctor gonna do in a three minute office visit? Yeah, looks good, because they see an average HbA1c Meanwhile, I'm bouncing around my glucose all day, blind coma, blind coma. They say, come back and see me in three months. And there's no blame here. At the end of the day, if you ask an underpaid, overworked doctor to do one more thing that's orthogonal to their workflow, no matter how sexy it is, they won't do it. Right? And so in many ways, what we chanced upon and what we built literally uh, almost, it's, it's been a decade in this journey, was if we could actually take the cell phone, And if we could actually build this thing called an app, and keep in mind, in 2005, the app was the Nokia 6100 where you had to press the three key four times to get the letter F, right? It wasn't what we have today. And we said, if we could actually take that platform and have people input data, whatever the data was, multivariate data, and actually get real-time feedback. And what I, my feedback and Vincent's feedback may be different because our comorbid conditions are different, our meds are different. So if we could give that precision feedback, could we move the needle on outcomes? And so in short, a 281 one c reduction on average, just the uh, the FDA requires a 0. 0.5 reduction for new drug. So it's amazing that we're able to get these types of outcomes, Pierre, with digital therapeutics, right? For people who start their Blue Star journey above 9, the average drop is 3.5. That's 7x, 7x what the FDA requires for a new drug. So just think about the impact. Doctors who receive that analysis from the Blue Star reports and their recommendations what to do, are five times more likely to make a medication change or titrate a medication. So in one hand, you see patients engaging and getting better. In one hand, you see physicians coming closer to their doctors. So it's, you're empowering the two to take control. I say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I'm dead serious. The blockbuster drug of this century is what? It's the engaged patient. If we can get them to do what they need to do and all the things that they need to do in a way that's friendly, simple, fun, we get to move the needle. So here's the fun part, which is we've actually quantified economically with actual adjudicated claims data in the United States. We'd love to do that same thing here in the UK because the cost systems are fundamentally different. But in the US, on average, we're seeing about a $254 to $271 per patient, per month cost savings. And that's achieved after the first six months of Blue Star use. So if anybody's doing an ROI calculation, it's pretty dramatic. So I'll leave you with this thought that says, it's fine to have all the clearances, it's fine to have the outcomes, it's fine to have the economic outcomes, all of that good stuff. As a patient myself, I think it's super important to understand that people who suffer from a chronic condition often feel lonely. And when you're lonely, bad things happen and there's this abyss of misery that you go down. And if technology can be what lifts these people out and gives them hope, then we all go home thinking we've done something good for society, right? So that's my shtick.
6: Thank you very much. And as I've got the mic, I'll kick off on the questions and then ask Simon if he wants to ask a question then throw it open to the floor. So. It's fantastic to hear all of your experience and the evidence that you've generated. Um, uh, my, my first question is to, to Sophie, actually. Um, how have you p- um, complemented your published evidence with real-world data?
3: The, the question was, how have we complemented our published evidence with real-world data? I, I think we think about data as something that should be in the public domain, so we have published our real-world evidence as well as the randomised control trials. Um, and, and there shouldn't really be a, a separation between the two. Um, you know, we want to prove that we're effective in all the settings where Sleepio is used. So that's in the wild, it's in clinical settings, um, and it's in the workplace. Um, so, yeah, the, the evidence is, is there to be interrogated uh, in the public domain. My question
0: is actually to, to all of you, actually, if you wouldn't mind... Uh, answering this. So uh, from a kind of digital personal design perspective, uh, whenever I read a study, I read an awful lot of studies, and they never seem to focus on the design aspect. They don't really, a lot of them, focus on what is it like for the person using it, their context, their experience, uh, and a lot of the, I think, the challenges I see in digital health, uh, particularly when you read about drop-off rates and everything else, for me, comes out of the challenge of design. It's a design challenge, not anything else. So, I would like, I'm interested in your reflections on on that thought and how, particularly within your own products and your own experiences, you sort of try to address that challenge as well as generate evidence that's also valid from a clinical perspective.
1: First of all, I mean, uh, these solutions are developed in partnership with the patients and and the healthcare professionals. Just as an example, uh, in the case of Voluntis, our very first partner, uh, as we started the company, was the patient association, uh, it was the Juvenile Diabetes Association. uh, in France and it's it's been a great journey. I mean, Over time we did seven studies uh, and we had, we constantly improved the device after each study because we learned a lot along the way of what works, what doesn't work, what needs to be refined and so on. The very first systems we developed were not that successful in terms of engagement of patients, quite frankly, because we had passive systems when we started, meaning like patients would self-report data online through their web portal, blood glucose monitoring data, We would enable physicians to look at this data remotely and intervene. After two weeks, the patients didn't use the system because they didn't see the value for themselves. They they felt that they were working only for their physicians, not for themselves. So that was an initial learning that we went through that led us to think, okay, how we can move the needle, how we can develop intelligence into our systems to provide this meaningful feedback instantly uh, for patients. So that was you know, key, uh, you know, uh, milestone in our history because all of a sudden we decided to focus on algorithms, patient decision support, not only asking for data but giving, you know, meaningful feedback instantly and so on. And all of a sudden, once we did that, we saw very, very different adherence rates uh, from patients. We were able to have very good, uh, you know, sustained uh, usage uh, of, of the product. But it's a never-ending story, and I think we keep learning all the time as we, you know, develop these systems. And the real world, you know, provides a lot of, uh, you know,
2: insights uh, on this uh, beyond the clinical studies, of course. Yeah, thanks. I mean, we haven't published any, any studies on the UX design, how patients get on with it. Um, but we, we have a full-time UX designer who works on our app uh, full-time to make sure every device that uses the technology, it looks fantastic. Um, we had 30 patients initially that helped with developing really great, massive user interface, big clunky feet, um, tiles. It looks a bit like Windows 10, unfortunately, on iOS, um, but actually it behaves really well. It's got really nice um, you know, uh, tiles that have nice um, logos on them. So even if you have difficulty with language, you know which tile to press on. And every time you go into a tile and have to enter data, the user experience, it looks good. If you open up on a device and, uh, you know, a data entry point isn't in the place it needs to be, your patient will stop using it. Um, and we do keep an eye on, you know, drop-off rates. If you have any apps overall, about 20% of people that you give an app to will never open it. Um, but you'll get around 60% of people that start using it on almost a weekly basis. So the stickiness can definitely be there. But the UX shouldn't be just on the patient side. We have a clinician back end that enables you to manage your whole populations of patients through long-term conditions platforms, And your clinicians want a lovely, sexy user interface to work through as well.
3: I think, I think design is the secret source, um, and there are probably good reasons why not everything is published. Is because that can be what really makes the difference. Uh, and of course, uh, we do everything that, that uh, my colleagues have said about working with patients. Um, I can give one example. Before the, the app was launched, our prof uh, obviously needed to have a voice. Um, and I'm looking at one of the co-founders now, who you'll meet shortly, who has a delightful Scottish accent. <laughs> and we tested Scottish accents, Irish accents, English accent. The Scottish was the most trusted. Um, so uh, the, the, when you meet the prof, it's not actually Colin. There was there was reason behind this, but um, I'm, I'm sure the two of them have a lot in common.
4: Well, so so we develop products that looks like video game. So. Back in 2012, we decided to internalize our video game studio recruiting some executive directors at LucasArts. They were actually managing the Star Wars franchise, and the next day they were working at Achilles. So those people have made their professional career out of design and absolute obsession about quality of how they design the products. And the way they do that in the video game industry is they permanently beta test on users. So, unfortunately, with medical device, you cannot do that. You have to enter into an IRB-approved clinical trials, so they get very frustrated not being able to test any new innovation they put in that. But what we've been able to do is to put something that is very important in life science in general, which is the translational methods. How do you get to the patients? Really understand what is the condition? Really understand what's the symptoms and how does it correlate at the cognition level when it comes to killing? and then put that into the perspective of what the product should do, what the product should not do because those patients are impaired some way, or those patients are not actually accepting the challenge across the board the same way. I mean, an autistic patient is not accepting the same level of challenge and the same level of frustration in an ADHD patient, and that's also true across therapeutic areas. So we look at that, and then we feed our innovation loop to the design studio and say, guys, this product cannot be shaded of grey because those patients are visually impaired. So you have to change something about that. So we actually look back using the translational methods, and then the video game studios just looking back because they are absolutely compulsive about quality of their products.
5: So really quickly, um, in our case, better to be lucky than to be smart is the honest truth. Um, we happened to meet uh, Dan Rosenberg out at Stanford uh, way back when. Dan- is one of the three guys in the world that's credited with creating the user experience field in and of itself. And uh, uh, another fellow out there by the name of B.J. Fogg, who's one of the fathers of behavior modification. And they work very closely with us and said, this is great, work with patients and providers, but you have to make sure that you're providing all the affirmation, confirmation, validation, education from a behavioral science perspective, the same thing, what you need to do from a UX perspective is that's where your design starts. It's things like right studies, it's things like human factor studies, right up front where you can actually see, because the fun of software is you can actually see what happens when they press a button the wrong way, or if they don't press a button that you wanted them to press a button, or they don't select something. And you can make those changes very quickly, which is what software enables. And so I think part of the secret sauce, you're absolutely right, but I think, Getting that human uh, interface is really important. It's important to get the engagement. What we found is actually quite fascinating. On average, 24 times a week, which is actually really high, our highest users are are actually about the age of 65. They're up at 30, 35 times a week, and you're like, really? Well, maybe it's because their grandkids have bought them this device, and that's all they do these days is press these buttons, and that's how they interact with people. But I think in many ways, user experience is absolutely critical. It's vital to the success of these things.
6: Thank you. Um, So before I invite the audience, I have one more actually and that's considering the UK environment and we we heard a couple of challenges from you um, about um, developing your technology here. One was cost and getting the money to conduct trials, the other was evaluating cost effectiveness. If you were to redo your journey till now, what would you do differently to try and address those challenges? And I'm looking particularly at the two in the middle
2: here. Um, at the very beginning of the journey, we sought the funding. So um, I'm a clinical trialist by background. Um, we used to run large clinical trials at the University of Southampton. My co-founder was a professor of respiratory medicine. So we had clinical trials advice right at the very beginning of the development process and realised that was completely key. But also, you know, to publish and get a publication track record, that was the right journey to start on. It's a wash with money out there in terms of funding from Innovate UK. And if you've got a really, really good idea, it will get funded. Um, So to run a really good RCT, you're looking at between three or four hundred thousand pounds to get it off the ground. Um, But it's money well spent, money well invested. And I don't think we can get our payers to put their money um, in their pockets and pay for our products without the evidence that lies behind them and the proof of cost effectiveness as well.
3: Um, hearing the cost of, of some RCTs, I'm, I'm daunted. Um, if I was a developer now, I'd be thinking, gosh, that's frightfully expensive. Um, I joined Big Health as the fifth employee, I think. I was the, um, a behavioural health scientist, and, and one of my first roles was to help the team develop more evidence. Um, I would say that I probably cost less than that um, to, to help with publishing some of our first trials. Um so definitely embed research from day one. Um, I, I think that's something that our co-founders did, did brilliantly in terms of building up that team as the company grew. So we now have you know, a research team of uh, three, um, and it's growing all the time. Um, what I did differently, I think I spent probably the best part of a year knocking on CCG's doors, asking for money. Um, and I think probably we should have stuck to our vision, which was to think big. To pursue and advocate for national reimbursement, delivery at scale, because that's where digital medicines can, can really deliver.
1: I think uh, developing the evidence is not cheap. On uh, you know, we had to raise a lot of money also to be able to do large scale studies. Uh, I mean, what we did is to raise funds through venture capital. Uh, so today, you know, we have raised over forty three million in our development journey to get where we are today. On uh, it's uh, high for European standards. Uh, it's not high by U.S. standards. <laughs> And you know to also complement that, we also turned out to partners, uh, and in our case, uh, the pharma industry uh, has helped us also along the way uh, to also help us, uh, you know, uh, develop our studies. Uh, so we have you know uh, been uh, glad to be able to uh, you know develop relationships. We think that you know digital therapeutics companies have a con- compelling case also to partner with other types of uh, of groups, uh, life science companies also. Uh, on digital therapeutics companies have, you know, great things to develop together, I think. So it's an ecosystem we need to form all together. I think, you know, what we have initiated, which is also the formation of the Digital Therapeutics Alliance, is very important because now we want also to be able to reveal this category of players, uh, to reveal this field, you know, creating a new therapeutic class in itself. It's not going to happen overnight like this, you know. So we have... Really, to you know, join forces uh, to make it happen. On, a, I am glad that you know we are bringing new members in the alliance. Uh, the pharma industry is coming also. We'll be making some announcements soon on the payers, the providers, the patients. All you know should you know work together to make it happen at scale.
4: Yeah, I think cost-wise, uh, we're not actually experiencing a very different paradigm than the medical device industry or the pharma industry. Of course, the numbers are different uh, because. Uh, uh, the requirements and number of patients are not the same, and also the cost of putting access of giving access to our technology is not the same either. Though, actually, in certain indications, uh, it could be as challenging and as costly in getting access to those patients. And I, I, I keep taking the example of uh, asymptomatic Alzheimer's disease, where you have to actually recruit 100, 200, 500 patients and the average recruitment rate of a clinical center is 0.75 patients per month, you actually struggle equally in pharma than other uh, therapeutic uh, vehicles to actually get those patients. So you have to open 50, 60 sites. And for companies like, I mean, digital therapy companies that are not funded like pharma, those indications are, not, are out of reach for us. And for that reason, we are not entering those space because This is too complex, and this is too uh, a a large burden for us to actually really develop those technologies and indications for which it would make an extreme sense. So we would also actually benefit from, uh, you know, nationwide programs such as the one you manage and, and, and in other countries as well to really access those patients because you have patient registry, because you've managed across the board those indications for a long time, and we could work together on that and reducing the costs. Not necessarily on the dollar amounts, but on the exposure to long-term commitments on studies.
6: So I'd like to invite the audience to ask your questions to the panel.
3: I'm really interested to find out whether the peer review publication process, whether you found that a kind of a hoop to jump through or something that was a genuine value add that you learned from. And then the second part of the question really is just to ask, one of the things that we struggle with when we're assessing randomized control trials of digital therapeutic interventions is this idea of this iterative design process and the kind of constant changes to the user interface. And is there anything you can say to us in the kind of uh, academic publishing world as to how we can handle this and whether we need to do updates to the trial, uh, how do we describe the intervention? So two questions there. Thank you.
6: So who's... And about peer-reviewed public...
5: Yeah, I can start. Um, we, we published our first peer-reviewed journal in 2008. I think we were one of the first, maybe we were one of the first five globally to actually do a peer-reviewed publication on a, on a digital therapeutic. And uh, University of Maryland, uh, Dr. Charlene Quinn, who's the head of epidemiology, was our principal investigator. And, and everybody had advised us, you should get somebody else to do it. Don't just do it yourself for the validity and all that good stuff. Um, and I think in many ways for us, uh, and certainly for other people who have published peer-reviewed journals it's a tremendous competitive differentiator it's a tremendous validation of that this really works it's it's been uh, uh, vetted uh, by somebody else it has been proven etc so uh, I think many many more people are trying to figure out how they should do this kind of peer-reviewed publication because then it has its gravitas associated with your work um, so I think I would I would highly highly recommend that for folks uh, and I think that the opportunity we have going forward, which comes to your second question, is we all know we took a year and a half to do our first study, and, and, and it, it is what it is, and it took so long to recruit, and, and just because people didn't know how to do it, and, and we have to get to a point where our study cycle time has to match the cycle time of software innovation and agile software development. And uh, Because otherwise we're not taking advantage of Agile uh, and the speed at which we can innovate. And so this goes to your real world that says, as and when we're bringing these products out, we have the ability to change parameters and we can rapidly see what happens in real-world cohorts. And I think therein lies the opportunity that if you have a base, start off with the base of a solid peer-reviewed, but then afterwards really embed real-world evidence uh, strategies uh, as you iterate your software, because then you have the best of both worlds, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I would like to compliment you know on the second part of the question because I, I think we have some feasibility uh, issues. Uh, I mean, in the evaluation process, if you talk about randomized control trials, because you know we use the assumption that we created for the worlds of medication, and right now these are different objects, right? Uh, they change all the time, they can have multiple versions. By the time you run a three to four year study, you might be at version four, and <laughs> you started with version one of your system. So you, you, we really have an issue with the life cycle of these products, which is, which is unprecedentedly short. So it's a new class of medical device. It's a software medical device. It's no longer a hardware medical device. So that's one element which prompts the need for agility uh, in the designs. Uh, I, I think we, uh, also, uh, face a risk in this industry that uh, you know uh, people would say, "Oh, you did this RCT in this country, but you know the, organi- the care delivery model is different here. You know, uh, the nurses and the physicians don't do the same things. The cost, of, you know, the economics of this healthcare system is are different. How can you translate these results that you achieve in this country into this other country?" So. Are we going to be treated differently with a higher bar than medications at the end of the day? And oh, that's the risk I think. Uh, so uh, there is a feasibility issue, uh, and I think that there is a very important case here for more real-world type of evaluation. And the, the question which is associated with that is: For what? Why? why? Why do we do these studies? Is it to get reimbursement, for example? Uh, so I think some of the questions can also uh, you know prompt from new answers. Uh, for example, you know you. Think, how, how could we pay differently for these technologies? Uh, should it be like an upfront payment, like a hardware medical device uh, that is not revisited, uh, you know, constantly, or should we more should we also have more agile reimbursement frameworks uh, that take into account real world data? The good news about our products, and that's very different from a medication, is that natively we collect patient data, which can assess the patient's response to the intervention. So it's very easy for us as a company really to. Create a, a financial mechanism where we pull out our data and we show if our intervention is effective, if patients use it, and if the intervention is successful to get patients to target, for example, in terms of glycemic uh, control in our case. So, if you're able to, you know, rely more on real-world evaluation methodologies, you should also be able to reimburse more based on real-world effectiveness. And I think we'll, we we start to get some
2: answers if we think, you know, uh, this way. Yeah, publishing in peer-reviewed journals is always a frustrating process, unfortunately, and and go, going through that peer-reviewed appraisal and then getting a, through a nine-month process and it's still being rejected is a, is a difficult proposition, but it does raise the bar significantly. We're not just looking at evidence of efficacy, we're looking at evidence of safety as well. So certainly people who've got COPD and exercising in their room, people are worried about them falling over or desaturating or having a cardiac arrest because they're exercising without being... Um, without being seen. Um, but what we showed was through our studies that uh, serious adverse events and adverse events were less in digital intervention groups. And to your to your other question as well about the design of the RCT, the way we get around it is we test each of the functionalities within the app itself to not the whole app environment, which will change quite considerably. So the first one was primary rehab. The second was... That we showed the the inhaler videos corrected ninety eight percent of inhaler errors without any other intervention and those are in the asthma app and so that study then becomes valid across different platforms.
3: Just one final point on the peer reviews. Um if you do find it bit frustrating writing them and getting them through the review process. The most effective way I think of scaling the research team is actually to, to collaborate with uh, independent researchers and then you have that um, external validation. Most of our trials now have been published by our external partners. We haven't necessarily seen the data. They've just used CPO as the intervention and once you know that something works, researchers come to you because they're like, brilliant, this is a scalable intervention we can use to improve sleep and look at other outcomes like productivity anxiety
4: depression yeah very, very similarly at Akili actually the company started on a major publication uh, that ended up being on the cover page of Nature in 2012 so technically our uh, scientific founder worked on healthy volunteer and showed that it could actually not only monitor subtle change of cognitive performance but also recover certain cognitive domains as well so starting from there it became a sort of absolute rule of when you start a new indication, you have to have that in mind as what's the major publication that actually you can deliver on to really create interest. And so because we do that systematically across all the portfolio, all the therapeutic areas, we get now tons of solicitation by investigators coming and say exactly along those lines, we want to publish that stuff. We want to be the originator of that paper. Can we give, can we work together can you help us perform that trial? Because we don't have the technical capabilities, because we don't have the devices, but also we don't have the ability to do like device downloaded, device generated uh, clinical data and and statistics around those data. So we do that with them, and at the end of the day, we we actually prepare the publication almost from,
0: from the get go. Hi, I'm Mark from a digital health company called Aviva. Um, the interesting thing is none of you are, are what I would call vertically integrated in the way that Amada and Livongo and those other companies are, where they're the service provider and also the digital health company. How do you solve the distribution problem if you are just a digital therapeutic um, versus that kind of integrative model?
5: Yes, yeah, so, so I'll answer on behalf of WellDoc. So we, are, we do have partners, uh, uh, as they do. Uh, And I think we were talking about it today. For those of you who haven't read this book by Charlie Fine, he's a professor at MIT called Clock Speed, read it. The answer to the question is very well established in that book. But at this point, because it's a nascent industry, uh, we have to have vertical integration, which means you need partners, whether it's going to be marketing partners, go-to-market partners, device partners, hosting partners, service delivery partners, data analysis partners. So in our case, we have Johnson & Johnson, we have Solera, we have Samsung, we have Volantis, we have... Uh, several partners we work with through the value chain, but I think that's going to be, and I think you'll see it in 2018. We're all betting that 2018 and 19 are going to be the year of the merger or acquisition or things like that because uh, you need that kind of vertical integrated capability to reach what you need to reach and deliver what you need to deliver full value. Yes, on you know
1: for example you know we can't solve on our own you know big issues like chronic disease management in itself so for all you know diabetes management is uh, is multifaceted uh, you know you have to help patients you know uh, through their lifestyle you know which requires you know some great behavior change support uh, you uh, have to have good sensors uh, to collect you know daily measurements you have to get intelligent software to help with medication therapy optimization you have to have great support for example by nurses or diabetes educators on the phone and so on so there are multiple pieces that you you need to aggregate to really provide a meaningful uh, offering so in our case you see mostly two two flavors uh, of our product on the market either as a standalone device which is uh, also now reimbursed in, in different places so it can sit on its own; it's fine. It does the work, the job of insulin improvement nicely. The other aspect is also that we tie to other bigger platforms, uh, just like a module. And we acknowledge that you know it's there is a great uh, case to uh, create a very personalized mix of interventions for patients. So, for example, there are great companies that develop great sensors great companies that are very good at coaching patients on the phone, uh, companies that are doing a great job at behavior change interventions but like WellDoc. You know, you see different digital therapeutics that sometimes, just like medication, you also combine together to create like a new type of offerings that we have never seen. So I think when we announced our partnership with WellDoc, it was the first time two digital therapeutics companies were actually working together to create a meaningful mix of interventions. So uh, I think there is a, also a great case for collaboration. Uh, in in this space to uh, get the best-of-breed, let's say, interventions to uh, make the maximum impact for patients?
3: Yeah, I think um, our our ambition is obviously to improve access to evidence-based mental health care, and we can only do that if we partner with uh, organisations which have a great reach. Um, And in the healthcare system in the UK, that means the NHS. And um, so we've been very lucky to partner with... uh, London's Digital Mental Wellbeing (coughs) Service, which is a a brand new, very innovative collaboration of CCGs, local authorities across London, who are trying to create a service to reach people where they are with mental health, to try and kind of uh, reach out to people with effective help and tackle the issues of of stigma. Um, And so Sleepio, um, the Mental Health Foundation, there are various uh, evidence-based interventions which are available on this kind of portal for Londoners. And we hope... But you know, if we gather the appropriate evidence, this is a model that could potentially be scaled, could be scaled nationally. It would be great to see NHS.UK um, with you know a platform of, of self-help interventions on it. So it's something we're working on.
2: Yeah, firstly integrating is the most fun part of the job, actually. So we, we have a digital transformation team that's headed up by a clinical team. So they go into each individual clinical commissioning group. They work with the clinicians that are working across developing new pathways. And then we work out where the touch points are for the app at every single part, all the way from primary care community to acute care. Um, And it's then getting a project management team that understands the clinical requirements. Um, The app has to be plastic enough to adapt itself across different systems. It has to be able to interface with other clinical systems into EMIS and system one if you're working with NHS, um, because clinicians won't have something that's completely isolated partnerships, as everyone said, is, is really key. And we're working with great sense companies, great other digital tech companies, online doctor companies, um, and integrating our apps into lots of other clinical systems that don't look like my M Health products. I think, you know, when you talk about the service, I think you also
1: need to, to think about uh, innovative care delivery models because, you know, the activities of the physicians and nurses are going to change also uh, with, you know, the support of these kind of technologies. And the payment systems also have to change also for the healthcare professionals because, if, take an example, for example, remote patient monitoring. Uh, if there is no payment in place to pay for these interventions in between face to face visits you'll never get you know a strong adoption uh, by healthcare professionals on that's normal so in our case we have seen that the you know good uptake of this technology was strongly facilitated when you had uh, you know new established care delivery models for example like new roles for like telehealth nurses that can act on behalf of the physician you know approve under protocols that are you know, well-regulated, approved by, by by law. You also need to have new payments in place for the, for the, for the doctors and nurses that do these remote interventions uh, for patients. That's essential. So here I'm not talking about paying for these technologies. I'm talking about changing the way the providers are, are paid for these new interventions that they can do with these technologies. And I think it's essential. If we want to see the usage of these kind of solutions increase, we have to think holistically. And that's why... It's, you know, we have to also work more collaboratively also obviously with the NHS here in this case uh, because the the payment systems is uh, obviously very complicated in each country. So uh, I think we need to think creatively about, you know, how we can put the right right incentives in place for these new delivery models to to go on on, on spread. But
4: but somehow I'd like to be a little bit provocative here because uh, we look at, so we develop products that are ultimately prescribed and we're gonna actually make them covered and reimbursed ultimately. So they're part of the therapeutic arsenal that the physician's going to prescribe. And so we look at them as by indications. And we look at them and say, does this product make sense in the same bag than those drugs or this medical device? And sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes, as an emerging industry, we're gonna have to actually go by ourselves, do the medical education, get to the doctors, and then actually get to the patients ultimately. And how we do that is gonna be somehow relying on us to make it happen. And we know that so so in certain indications for which cognition is a sort of a comorbidity or a secondary aspect of the disease, obviously we're gonna go with people that have established franchise, who call on the same doctors, for which there is a rationale to have our products together with their products in the same bag. But we we have actually as digital therapeutics emerging, we have to make sure that we're doing what's best for the patients, eventually the caregivers, and the systems that are actually supporting all of that. And sometimes it's not with existing paradigm
2: that we're going to achieve that. Hi, uh, Mark Campbell from Nice. Um, I was just sort of reflecting that these years are all um, relatively mature products, you know, by the standards of digital technologies. Um, And um, on that basis, I wondered um, when the product was first developed, whether you had in mind that it would be primarily an enabler of an existing pathway. You know, so for diabetes or COPD, we've had evidence-based guidelines for a long time, and we know which interventions are effective. So in what sense did you just want to drive an efficient uh, enabling of that pathway for patients? And over time, has that aspiration changed so that the product becomes sort of in and of itself a novel intervention beyond that enabling role? Thank you.
5: It goes back to the same concept of what you think collabor- collaboration is. But uh, in short, um, ten, 100% of a million is always less than 10% of a billion. Math always works in your favor that way. And which means collaboration is key. And. I think we started out with the objective that we always wanted to augment. You can't swallow the app. You can't. You have to augment existing therapies. You have to augment existing treatment pathways. You have to make the physician-patient interaction more meaningful so that the pair can actually do what they need to do to actually get to where they need to get to. I think as we've evolved... Sometimes it remains as an integrative pathway. For some patients who are well-controlled, it becomes a secondary pathway that just they can sustain on their own. In your case, it is a new pathway because there is no known treatment pathway that does the same thing. So I think it'll vary. There's never going to be a one-size-fits-all. But I think understanding that spectrum and knowing that you should have the flexibility to accommodate that spectrum is important.
4: Just a quick comment here. I must say that FDA has been helpful. Uh, I'm not a co-founder of the company, so... Five years ago when they started the company, they had in mind that using this kind of technology could deliver on treatment. And so the question was, how do you demonstrate that? How do you demonstrate clinical relevance of that treatment as a monotherapy? So first they went to FDA, and FDA said, "Ah, I'm not sure we're going to regulate that. It's actually, it looks like a video game. And uh, it's a digital treatment. We don't have guidelines. And so they pushed back and they said, uh, definitely we're going to make claims. So we'd like you to help us regulate that. And they actually started to work on some very collaborative way and saying the best way if we understand your technology well, the best way to demonstrate what you want to demonstrate is that. And then it started with sort of back and forth communications. They helped us finalize the endpoints in the RCT studies. And so very early on it was designed to be a treatment in and of itself.
3: In the case of Sleepio, The reason it was developed is really that the reason that we're still trying to operate now, and that's to improve the standard of care. So for insomnia, the gold standard treatment is CBT for insomnia. But there are a handful of trained providers in the NHS, and that's still the case. And there will never be enough money to train enough providers to provide CBT for insomnia to everyone who needs it. Um, And so clinical guidelines say CBT should be the number one intervention, and yet most people end up with sleeping pills. Which are uh, risky and, and, in some cases, harmful. Um, so, yeah, it's about improving the standard of care.
2: Yeah, collaboration is key, not just in uh, implementing the products, but also getting the evidence. And a good example of that is our work with Dorset CCG in implementing a Pam tile inside every single app that we distribute. So we can measure patient activation markers without any having to go anywhere near um, a clinical trials nurse or a paper-based design. We can start delivering evidence at a touch of a button. Um, with regards to Nice, unfortunately, Nice haven't published evidence for COPD since 2010, um, so since our company was formed. So hopefully, in the next iteration, we we'll start seeing digital health. Yes, in diabetes,
1: we didn't, you know, we, our goal has never been to change, you know, the, the, the guidelines. The, you know, we have a very simple thing that we're trying to achieve: is you know, unleash the full power of insulin therapy in the real world. That's the only thing that we need to do, and there is a massive work to be done because right now these medications are very effective, but they don't deliver their value in the real world so that's the issue we're trying to tackle and um, we are fitting within existing guidelines but interestingly just uh, as, a, uh, as an illustration of uh, evolu- evolutive guidelines we are now doing work in oncology and in oncology there are various massive transformations happening because oncology now is very different than it was when it was 10 years ago 10 years ago you had treatments that were mostly taken inside the hospital, like uh, injectable drugs and so on. Now more, more, more and more treatments are taken at home. You have more and more needs you know, to more remotely monitor patients. Oncology is becoming more of a chronic disease now. Uh, so those are massive changes that could be enabled also uh, through technology. So there are different cases per therapeutic area in terms of you know what's the current paradigm and how we can enable the next generation of that paradigm.
6: Thank you very much. Thank you to the audience for the questions and thank you from Simon and myself to the panelists for sharing your great insights and experience. I particularly liked the agile payment and reimbursement framework so if anybody's got any bright ideas of how to achieve that, that, that will be welcome. Thank you again.